Hello and welcome to the menu Monaco Radio's food and drink program. I'm your host, Chiara Rimella. Today, we discover how fakes, fraudsters and grape crusaders have shaped the world of wine throughout history with wine master Rebecca Gibb. Yes, it's about wine, but ultimately it's about humans pulling one over on other humans. Also in the programme, we journey to Copenhagen to find out about its booming coffee culture. It's a small cappuccino. Oh, okay. it's, it's a cappuccino. It's, the cappuccino for me is the perfect milk espresso beverage because that's where the balance for me is the most optimal. Plus, we meet award-winning chef Jörg Zupan in Ljubljana. All that on the menu on Monaco Radio. Many of us enjoy a bottle of wine, but what makes a good one and what gives it its value? Is it the pleasure we have in drinking it or does provenance and authenticity play a role? That's the question wine master Rebecca Gibb seeks to answer in her new book, Vintage Crime, A Short History of Wine Fraud. In it, she follows the stories of wines ameliorated, edulcorated or straight-up forged to understand what drives people to tamper with a bottle of the good stuff and the money there is to make in the process. I sat down with Rebecca in the studio to get to the bottom of these murky misdemeanours. This is a fascinating book. Um, it's called Vintage Crime, A Short History of Wine Fraud. And I think the first question that comes to my mind, and it's a question that you ask in the book as well, is why are we so fascinated by fraud? Well, it is compelling, isn't it? We, I think we're, some of us secretly wish... Like look at it and think, could we do that? Well, we look at all these Netflix and we see movies like Catch Me If You Can. We love a bit of fraud. We love people pulling one over on somebody else, particularly if the other person is a wealthy billionaire who's not that likeable. There is a narcissistic tendency from fraudsters if you dig deep into them, and they all they're quite egotists. They want to improve their social standing amongst their peers, and. I think we are all fascinated just through it. We're fascinated by other human beings and their behaviour. And that's what the book is about ultimately. Yes, it's about wine, but ultimately it's about humans pulling one over on other humans, why they're doing it and what, we're gonna, what we choose to do about it. It is, however, a book about wine fraud. And not everyone might be familiar with what actually constitutes wine fraud. What does and what is real wine? <laughs> oh, big question, Zakiara. Thanks for that. So wine fraud has changed throughout history. And this is a book that goes back all the way to Roman times to today. So what constituted wine fraud in Roman times may not necessarily constitute wine fraud today. When you look at Roman times, they were adding all sorts to their wines like seawater, herbs Lovely. and spices, delicious, honey, such things. Well, we we. We add things like that today to our mulled wine or our sangria. We we add herbs and spices and fruits, and we don't think that's wine fraud. We're just creating a lovely drink. But wine adulteration, I see as more wine amelioration back in the Roman times because wine didn't very, taste very good back in Roman times. Wine spoiled quickly. We didn't have a lot of scientific knowledge about how wine was made until really the last sort of 100, 150 years where we really understood what is actually going on in that fermenting vat of wine. So people created, did amelioration because wine would soon sour. So you'd end up with vinegar within months of making it. So that's not pleasurable to drink. And ultimately, wine, it should be, it's obviously going to be slightly intoxicating, but wine should be a real pleasure to drink. And that's the reason why wine exists, because it is pleasurable. Yes, back in Roman times, it provided calories as well as 
providing a slight intoxication. But yeah, it's all about pleasure. And one of the great reasons why people have ameliorated or adulterated wine throughout time is basically to make the wine taste better. Today, we have got a real good grasp on how to make wine. You know, you go into your supermarket or you go to your wine merchant, hopefully, and you look at the shelves of wine and you can be 99.9% sure that those wines that have been bottled will provide pleasure. They're not going to be, they're not going to be off. They're going to be good wine. We have learned how to ship wine from like the other end of the world, 12,000 miles away, and it can land in your, on your shelf and in your glass, and you know that it's not going to be spoilt because we've totally nailed the technology of how to make wine now. So wine fraud has changed as a result. Wine fraud, you don't, you don't need to start adding herbs and spices to your wine anymore unless it's Christmas and you're making your, you're making your glue vine. But we know how to do that. So wine fraud has changed for that reason over time and now there is a whole new set of wine fraudsters out there. Well, I think this is really interesting because in the book you spend a lot of time talking about this idea of authenticity and I think that wine actually is an agricultural product that thrives off this denomination. You know, there is just really this idea that is baked into the way that we consume wine, that it has to be authentic to the place where it comes from. And there's a a level of strictness in many places about appellation, about you can only call this wine this if it comes from this very specific tiny region. And it's it's very stringent. But does it actually reflect more or less authenticity? And can you really call it fraud if it doesn't come from that tiny little patch of land? Where do you draw the line? It's very difficult to know where to draw the line with that. We... A hundred years ago, there weren't these strict regulations that said, oh, this is the boundary of Chateauneuf de Pap, or this was the boundary of Pomard in Burgundy, say. The wine producers have actually drawn those boundaries and they've created their laws in a bid partly to protect, well, largely to protect themselves from, A, from fraudsters trying to emulate what they do and to preserve their reputation, but also they've done it as it's protectionism. Um, they've drawn sometimes an arbitrary boundary around their village and, you know, that wine can only come from there. You know, rarity, always, if, you, if a product is rare, it's going to rise in value. And this is part of the reason why they did this as well. Is it truly authentic? It always depends on what your definition of authentic is. And it really is a subjective matter. You know, you look at this whole natural wine movement you go in the metropolitan areas you'll see natural wine bars that serve these so-called natural wines but to them that's really just grapes and and the natural yeast there's no yeast added there's nothing there's nothing added and for that reason a lot of the wines tend to spoil in the bottle because they haven't you know we've gone through all this We've gone through all this process of learning about wine technology and how what happens in the vat and then what happens in the bottle if you don't add preservatives. And we're seeing that in our glass now. We're seeing wines become fizzy in the bottle. We're seeing them become cloudy. Is that a pleasure to drink? Often not. Is it truly authentic? In the, in the eyes of the natural wine crowd, it is. So that's their interpretation of it. You know, if you go back 100 years, the meaning of authenticity was far different they just wanted a wine to come from a place and nobody to basically forge what they were doing you know the people of Chateauneuf de Pape didn't want 
didn't want their bottles of wine, didn't want the barrels of wine being sold with ox's blood in it and a couple of bottles of Algerian wine poured in to bolster it. They wanted their wines to come from a certain place and that's what they considered truly authentic. Well, the book takes us really through the ages, but I find it interesting that it's not just a chronological history, it's also a way of telling the history of wine because in many ways, as we've talked about, uh, the the history of fraud, it's it's a history of what makes something real and authentic. And I guess I just wanted to ask you, Can you tell us one of your favourite stories or your favourite anecdotes in the book that makes you feel like maybe it's a particularly interesting juncture in in the way that the history of wine has evolved and it makes us understand why it is what it is now? I think one of my favourite sections of the book is about lead in wine. You could find lead in wine as far back as Roman times because some of the Roman wines, as we talked earlier, was... You know, it soured quickly, it was unpleasant to drink. And what they did was they took basically grape juice and they boiled it, often in a lead-lined vessel. And when you would, it's like when you reduce like a, a stock down or reduce, a, you know, a juice down in, in a pan today, it made a smaller volume, but it made a much, like a thick, syrupy, sweet liquid that they would then add to the sour wine and it would balance it out and make it much more lovely to drink. However, because you were boiling down this grape production in a lead-lined vessel, it would leach into this into this reduction, which was called like sapper or defrutum. So there was lead-laced wine at this time, and they knew it was bad for your health. And yet, almost 2,000 years later, we still had crystal decanters. If you want to make glassware shiny and strong, you would used to put lead in it and... And lead lead decanters were leaching into wines even as late as the 90s until it was banned. So I love that the fact that the, the whole story of lead in wine goes back from Roman times almost up to present day. I also love the fact, well, I love, not probably not for the victims, but there were so many opportunities that were missed to ban lead in wine. And lots of people got very ill because of it, including some potentially some very illustrious individuals, including... Beethoven and Handel. It's a story of financial gain in many ways, right, to this, this history of fraud. But I think it's it's interesting that wine does live and die on its reputation as well. You know, when you go to a restaurant and you look at the list, you're probably not going to know all of the bottles on the list, but you're going to go by the reputation of the grape or you're going to go by the reputation of the region or the country itself. And some of these cases of fraud have affected the reputations of entire countries' productions for decades. It's interesting, actually, how much, even though wine is a sensory product, you either like it or you don't, and it should it doesn't necessarily need to matter where it comes from, but then it is so linked to reputation, it's so linked to brand. So how do you remedy these reputational damages? And can you give us some examples of these horrific reputational damages? Uh, I think the best case in point here is Austria and the antifreeze scandal, which happened in 1985. So at that time, the demand for Austrian wine, low-grade Austrian wine particularly, was for sweeter wines. And some unscrupulous producers started adding a thing called diethylene glycol to their wines to make their wines more rich and give them a nicer mouthfeel. 
Previously, they'd been adding glycerol. You find glycerol in like children's medicines to make them taste sweet and round and syrupy. They'd been able to put that in, but then they banned that. So they, there were some inventive, creative producers looking for an alternative and they found it in a thing called diethylene glycol. So they started adding it to it. They got found out, though, there was some suspicions uh, that this was happening. And then one unthinking producer decided to claim back for his diethylene glycol on his tax return. And the accountant pulled this to the fore and said, what is this? Anyway, this is when the antifreeze scandal breaks. Now, diethylene glycol is not actually antifreeze. Think somebody got it wrong and everyone jumped on board, but it's actually ethylene glycol. I mean, I'm no scientist, I'm a historian, but ethylene glycol is far different to diethylene glycol. And ethylene glycol is the stuff that goes in your antifreeze in your car. Diethylene glycol is not. However, people then jumped on board, thought it was thought it was lethal. And in some in some respects, diethylene glycol is not good for your health. It's not something that you want to drink it in your wine. But you would have to drink an inordinate amount of bottles of wine laced with diethylene glycol to die. You'd probably die of alcohol poisoning first. And as a result, the sales of Austrian wine fell through the floor. And the Austrian government, who which had made the laws much less stringent in the 1970s, they'd stopped annual inspections and such like they realized that they needed to pull their finger out and some of and, and as it resulted in some of the most strict wine laws in the world and it's taken them 20 30 years to come back from that all the lowly poor vineyards have been ripped out lots of the uh, lots of the lots of good producers but mainly the poor producers have fallen out of the industry there is no longer a demand for poor austrian wine and now you see Austrian wines on Michelin star, like a Riesling, a Grunewaldliner, even some of the reds now. There's Weigelts and hitting Michelin star wine lists again. And now they've just really turned it around. So I think it's, it's a good story that comes out of bad. The Danes take their coffee very, very seriously. The Nordic nation drinks an enormous 4.1 billion cups a year, putting them in a top five biggest coffee drinking countries in the world. And it all blossomed further about 15 years ago when there was a coffee revolution in Copenhagen. The Danish capital started to see some serious baristas emerge and is now as much a coffee destination as a food one for global gourmets. But what if you live there but don't drink coffee? Monaco's Denmark correspondent Michael Booth feels a bit of a misfit. I don't drink coffee, and I never have, which here in Copenhagen is a bit like living in France and shunning wine or living in Britain and not drinking tea. I have Danish friends who find my non-drinking of coffee actually quite provoking. But with Copenhagen set to host the world of coffee, the industry's big trade event next year, I felt that maybe I should have a go at coffee now, and who better than to guide me than one of the people responsible for Copenhagen's coffee naissance, Klaus Thompson, founder of Coffee Collective, and a former world champion barista. I'm on Jersborgeva now in uh, Nurbro in Copenhagen, outside the branch of Coffee Collective where this all started. And Klaus has very kindly agreed to try and introduce me gently to the wonderful world of coffee. (laughs) 
Klaus, do you meet many adult Danes who don't drink coffee? And, and if so, do you ever try and convert people like you're going to try and convert me today? I don't meet a lot of Danes who drink, don't drink coffee. <laughs> I think it's like 87% of the population yeah. here drinks coffee. When I do meet someone, yes, I will be asked to try to convert them. It's a um, challenge I, I love. I'm not even sure why I don't like coffee, right? Because I love the smell. I eat coffee beans once in a while. Now, if there's any man who can convince me, it's you. So what, what have you very kindly laid on for me here? The thing that most people don't like about coffee is the bitterness. And we don't like bitterness either. Bitterness is the least interesting part of coffee, where aromatics, natural sweetness, the acidity that can actually be in coffee are all the interesting things. So I wanted to start you off with a black coffee, no milk, yeah. where I think a lot of people would start with like the milk beverages. But I think if you really want to try coffee, the, the very best it can be, I think a coffee like this from Ethiopia, it's the washed coffee, it's very clean. So I'm hoping that this will be your, your gateway uh, into coffee. I'm genuinely slightly nervous. It's, it's a very dark coffee. What, tell, tell me just about this washing. What does that mean? Yeah, so that's the processing of the coffee. So you can process coffee in a variety of ways when you're a coffee farmer. And if you do a natural process, it's going to be more heavy. It's going to be more like um, dense and, and sometimes a little bit more sour as well. A washed coffee is going to be more bright, aromatic. What does it mean um, to what? They literally wash the beans? Yeah, or? so they literally they ferment the beans overnight. Um, first they depulp and get the fruit flesh off, and then they ferment them overnight. And then they wash them in clean water. And that's for me, is the best processing for really tasting the terroir, the, the result of the varieties and the climate and the soil and everything that has put its uh, little fingerprint in the coffee's flavor. So I guess you kind of liken it to, when you talk about terroir, to wine and chocolate and I'm thinking of some of the Japanese green teas that I do actually drink. It's the only hot drink yeah. I like. Yeah. So let's... Um, so let's have a smell first. All right. And I've actually given you two coffees. So the second coffee you're going to be tasting in a minute is uh, from Rosa in Peru. And if you just smell that one as well, and, and we won't taste that yet. Mm -hmm. They look very similar. They look similar and they're very light roasts. So the lighter you roast the coffee, which is something that we become quite famous for, the lighter you roast, the less you taste bitterness, and the more you taste the result that the farmer created. And that's really what I show. So when All you right. smell these two, you can probably sense some like floral aromas. Very. Also and almost like a tea-like quality to this worker from Ethiopia, where the other one is a little bit more traditional in its in It its smells fragrance. richer. Yeah, it smells richer, that's true. And then when we're going to taste it, like, uh, I mean, you can taste it any way you want, but I'm going to slurp. Go, yeah, go yeah. for it. I think we should slurp. Mm. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, for me, Oh, my this, God, that is yeah. not how I expected coffee to taste. <laughs> ah, yes. Uh, Perfect. That makes it's me really, very happy. It's really light and fresh. Yeah. And, and almost a very dark green tea, mm -hmm. like a slightly over... Yeah brewed green tea yeah and very low bitterness but you get the acidity on the side yeah. of your tongue you yeah. get a little bit of that like kind of citrusy peachy yeah. 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 sweetness there is almost and a sweetness to it's, it it's it's what i love about coffee is bringing out the natural sweetness that is the result of of just the ripest cherries being picked on farm level and then being carefully brought through all the processing being roasted meticulously and then finally being brewed so you get that sweetness out 
This is so funny because I didn't expect to be convinced so quickly. <laughs> it's a little bit embarrassing, actually. Okay, I mean, you got, <laughs> you got me at Ethiopia. And this, um, this is the beauty of it. And this is what we, we've experienced countless times that people come in and they're skeptic and they're like, I usually have this much sugar and this much milk. And we'll say, hey, the, the sugar is here, the milk is here, you, you get it any way you want. But before you put in your usual amount of sugar, maybe just have a taste. The coffee virgin in me is getting a lot of bit bitterness in the aftertaste. Because all coffees will have some kind of bitterness, but this is probably like the lowest bitterness you'll get, which is why you can actually drink it and you don't yeah. get like, oh, this is way too yeah. much. Ha tell me, let's, if we can just go back 15 years, what happened? What did you do and how did you do it? Because you really, Coffee Collective, that's where it all started, this ridiculous coffee wave that I've been so annoyed about <laughs> for the last 15 years. People going on and on and on about coffee, which now I'm beginning to understand why. Yeah. What did you do? How did you do it? kind of just saw this gap in the market that nobody was like addressing. And I think it's, it's inherent if you run a restaurant, if you do wine or whatever, if you like it, then surely there's a market out there for someone else who likes it. And we just probably had faith that this kind of weird little coffee world we were in is something that will speak to a large audience. All right, and let's, let's move on to the, it was from Peru. Yeah, Peru, from this producer called Rosa, and uh, she has a, a single farm in Peru. It's the first year we buy from her, and it's a very different kind of cup profile, so I'm, I'm curious to see what you think of that. I feel one. like I'm taking off my, um, my training wheels now. Well, it's very acidic, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's quite goosebumpy. Mm -hmm. For mm. me, also a little bit more bitterness. Mm. Like, not much, just a tad more, but also a lot more body. Would it be wrong to say there's more tannin in this? If you're in the wine world, you definitely pick up, like, more tannins here. Yeah. Mm. I think that I think this might be a step too far for me, mm -hmm. but interesting. I also thought that this would probably be pushing it, but <laughs> I was curious to see, since you liked the first one, if yeah. this would be, like, I can drink this too. I mean, yeah. in a blind tasting, I probably wouldn't be... Uh, uh, able to spot much difference but I think you would and mm. that's the fun thing is that whenever we do even if we do micro lots from the same farm and we do like eight different you know small fields plots of land within one farm and we invite guests in to taste it they can always taste the difference so it's really it's, like Bordeaux it's, it's like yeah. the, the difference between a little parcel of land here and a parcel of land there really exactly can you kind of uh, encapsulate what for you makes a good cup of coffee it has to be a representation of wherever that coffee came from. And you have to be able to taste that process or variety or whatever it was that the farmer chose to do for that coffee. And the last coffee you should taste. It's a small cappuccino. Oh, okay. it's, it's a cappuccino. It's, the cappuccino for me is the perfect milk espresso beverage because that's where the balance for me is the most optimal. And it's super sweet. And for me, there's a lovely kind of like, here you, you are definitely tasting lots of milk. Yeah. You're also tasting lots of coffee. And here the harmony yeah. for me is at the right balance I was where a, it's not too much either way. I was a bit worried about the milkiness because yeah. i absolutely repulsed by hot milk mm. and hot milk drinks. Yeah. But exactly that balance and that blend yeah. makes something really drinkable. Yeah. <laughs> You know, Klaus, uh, uh, job done. I mean, you had me at the at the, <laughs> at the Ethiopian. I, I think I think my heart belongs now to Ethiopian coffee, which is the birthplace of Arabica coffee. So it's very uh, it's very fitting in that way. <laughs> Cheers, Skoll, Tusentak. Skoll, um, thanks for uh, participating in this little experiment. You have a new customer. 
Brilliant. Well, mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah, uh, okay. Thanks so much to Klaus Thompson. If there are any coffee sceptics remaining after that, Coffee Collective will convert you. It has branches across Copenhagen and also in Aarhus. And World of Coffee takes place in the Danish capital at the end of June next year. For Monocle, in Coffeehagen, I'm Michael Booth. Now it's time for the week's top food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Monica Lillis. Mexican wine connoisseur Omar Barbosa has become the first ever non-French winner of a national wine waiting competition for Bordeaux wines. The victory came at the end of a gruelling multiple-stage exam process that began with a written test that involved 40 questions on Bordeaux's culture and cuisine. Mr Barbosa stunned judges with his grasp of terminology and local etiquette. This week, local politicians on the Italian island of Sicily have imposed a three-year ban on all sea urchin fishing. This comes as researchers have declared the sea creature close to extinction as a result of their rising popularity as a culinary delicacy. Despite their fishing already being severely restricted, sea urchins are usually served in some of Sicily's most popular tourist dishes, including spaghetti airici di mare. And finally, Australia is seeking to increase mango exports to Japan following the recent removal of strict import restrictions. Trade barriers once meant that Japan could only import five different low-risk varieties of Australian mango. Now, however, Japan will have access to all varieties of the fruit and allow Australia to take advantage of its competitive mango season, which falls between November and February. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Kiara. Thanks, Monica. You're listening to The Menu. Boasting about farm-to-table and zero-kilometres ingredients is relatively simple if you run a restaurant in a rural area. But what if you're smack in the middle of a capital city? Michelin star-winning Slovenian chef Jörg Zupan asked himself that question. And he also managed to create Solution, a city farm that supplies his two restaurants in Ljubljana, Breg and After. Monaco's man in Ljubljana, Guy Deloni, swung by to hear all about Jörg's personal approach to sustainable ingredients. It's Jörg Zupan. I'm the head chef and owner of After, formerly formerly Atelier and Break. In these days, if it's not sustainable, it's also not economical. It's uh, it can be very very expensive if you're not sustainable. This comes from how you cook, how much waste you produce, uh, what kind of in- ingredients you use, and also how you treat the person that you employ. Both of your establishments are yeah. in the, right in the centre of Ljubljana, yeah. so right in the centre of Slovenia's capital city. Yeah. But unusually, you have your own garden. Yeah. All the restaurants that I like, they have their own gardens. They're mostly on the countryside, like Grich and Hicha Franco and so on. They're on the countryside, they have their own land, they have their own gardens. But why should we be restricted in a way? You know, because we're an urban restaurant because we're in the city center and also from the economic point of view the idea was to be at least like 80% self-sustainable when it comes to vegetables at least we calculated that we need about 1000 or 1200 square meters 
of a garden. And we found it. And we found it actually really close, about 500 meters from here, I think, not even a, not even a kilometer. We were able to actually grow the things that you can't buy on the market, you know, different types of vegetables like okra and uh, tomatillos and, you know, something that might be a little bit more exotic, but still grows very good in, this, in these conditions. And now I think we're at a point that where we know exactly what we're going to use next year. If it costs you too much, if it doesn't make money, it's also not sustainable. How does it change your thinking as, as a chef when you're planning your menu and planning your, your creations that you've got your own production there yeah. rather than having to rely on them? It changes a lot because when, when things are uh, available at all times, you know, it's very simple to just you know, come up with a with an idea and say, wow, I want to cook this tomorrow. You know, I want to put this on the menu by the end of the week. Whereas in this case, there's a lot, as you said, there's a lot of planning. There's a lot of actual planning for months ahead. And still, it's not necessarily going to work out because you never know what the weather's going to be like. But a lot more planning than, than before. When you've sourced your fresh vegetables, yeah. that's not the end of the story. You obviously prepare them, and there's what would be waste for a lot of places, but you don't see it that way. Well, of course not. I mean, I, I think we're at a point now that when most chefs have learned how to try to cook as zero waste as possible. So, you know, you see the benefits in potato peels and uh, especially the flavor, you know, at, Potato specifically, the most flavor is in the peel itself, not in the meat. With that comes the zero waste approach and a more sustainable approach, I guess. Mm. But that's it's not just with vegetables; it's with fish as well. It's with meat. It should, you should. I think everyone should cook this way all the time. What's examples on on your menus, Jorg, of dishes which wouldn't exist? if you weren't taking a sustainable approach? Well, the most famous one, I guess, would be the ceviche that we're serving now in after. We make a little sauce, like a little fresh green juice out of all the green stuff that we find in the kitchen that we primarily don't know how to use. So, like, peels of cucumber or the tops of fennel tops or, you know, parsley stalks and uh, everything that generally isn't in an original recipe somewhere but the recipes never say what to do with the leftovers so we just decided to juice them all and then we add a little bit of uh, lemon juice just to prevent uh, the oxidization and also to give it a little bit of the acidity uh, a little bit of salt olive oil maybe a pinch of sugar just to balance things out and it's one of the most amazing sauces for especially for seafood for uh, like uh, ceviche of uh, sea bass or scampi or whatever because it's gentle it's balanced it's herbal it's almost like something like you want to put in your glass and just chug it is that good sounds very tempting actually yeah <laughs> do, do come by and try it it's on the oh, menu still When we're looking at sustainability, it's obviously a buzzword. You say that every chef n knows that you need to be. and Should know. And, and by should, now. Should know, by right. now already. Are, are you finding or do you see examples of where people are saying it but they don't really mean it? They, they talk it but they don't walk it? 
I think some people just think that you, you need to pretend you're sustainable just to be noticed. They don't take it as seriously as they should. You know, it's not a trend. It's not something that's like, you know, trendy now and it's not going to be trendy after 10 years. You know, with all these green Michelin stars and I think the, 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 the worst thing is to start giving out awards for sustainability. This is like, you know, because people are going to start to fake it sooner or later just to get the award and just to get the PR attention from it. I think that's very wrong and you know, shouldn't be happening. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday in San Francisco. Also, don't forget to tune into our spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods, for a tour of some of the world's tastiest destinations. I am Kerarimella. This programme was produced by Monica Lillis and our studio engineer was Callum McLean. Once again, we finished this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Lilac Wine by Jeff Buckley. Thanks for listening and until next week. Listen to me, why is everything so hazy? Isn't that she, or am I just...